if you have an employer of last resort, a job guarantee, a transitional job program, you are providing to everybody universally a direct access currency. The state needs to go spend first where there is more unemployment, where there is less population density. You don't have to care about trade imbalances for the exchange rate itself, because the exchange rate is more a result than a cause of the exchange rate. What I have said is that this campaign is not just about electing a president, it is about making a political revolution. Taking money from our children and borrowing from China. People are dying. Is the program so critical it's worth borrowing money from China to pay for it? And if not, I'll get rid of it. Stop lying! I want the truth! Now let's see if we can avoid the apocalypse altogether. Here's another episode of Macro and Cheese with your host, Steve Grumbine. All right. I want to thank Ivan Ivernizzi of the RET MMT from Italy joining us today at Macro and Cheese. Today, this interview, this discussion is kind of a continuation of our first meeting at the World Modern Monetary Theory Conference in New York City. I got to first meet Ivan at the conference and we talked about his paper. And uh, his paper, which we're going to be discussing today, is called MMT Theory of Exchange Rates. Now, for those of you in the United States that listen to Macro and Cheese, you'll know that many people out there talk about, you know, well, MMT is good for a closed economy and only for domestic markets. And a lot of times they'll dismiss the concept that MMT even talks about exchange rates or talks about any of the external constraints as a whole. Ivan has taken an academic deep dive into this subject, and I found it fascinating. So what I'm going to do before we get too far into this is allow our friend Ivan to introduce himself so we can give a proper explanation of who this young man is, and then we're going to go into an explanation of what this paper is all about. So Ivan, tell us a little bit about yourself. Hi. Sure. Thank you for having me. It's, very, it's really a pleasure for me to be here with you now. So I'm a co-founder of RetMMT, which is uh, an association that is spreading MMT into the Italian society in several environments, academic, business association, union, cultural environment, and of course on the net. And uh, through the years, uh, somehow helped the development and create a connection with Spain in fact, we have our now we have our cousin in Spain, which, which are called Red MMT Espana. Red means network, Rete means network in Italian. And now, currently, I'm actually trying to develop MMT also in France with the help of Robert, which is a French accountant, retired. So, well, I have a bachelor in uh, political economics. I'm uh, finishing my master of science in political economics 
in, at the University of Bergamo. And uh, well, I did organize for several years many meetings and activity related with, with MMT. So I'll, this, is, this is me, basically. And a beautiful me that says, so I want to also say, I've never met a more kind gentleman in my entire life. I promise you. You know, when I first met you and Daniela and Gianluca, I was so impressed with just the graciousness that you all have. And it made me feel a kinship with you that has just not left me. So I'm really grateful for you to take the time to talk today. So let's go into your paper. The three things that grabbed me right off the bat are number one, you talk about the access to currency at a local level within a currency-issuing nation. Then you talk about the monopoly power of the currency-issuing entity. And then you talk about the exchange rates and the theory of exchange rates beyond the domestic borders of a currency-issuing nation. So why don't we start with the first part, which is the overview of your paper, and then we'll take a stab at each one of those three concepts uh, to finish off the program. Sure. Basically, I start from the really nucleus of MMT that uh, recognize the currency as a public monopoly, which is imposed on a territory by the taxation. So you have that a state imposed taxes to a set of economic agents. Those taxes create the need in those economic agent to agents to provide themselves with the currency. And therefore, the taxation create a supply on the territory of goods and services in exchange for the currency of the state. And this is the nucleus of MMT, the starting point. Of course, then you have the state that can spend, that create by spending its currency and provide himself of real resources by the private sector. The point is that the state usually tax larger population than the one which he provide directly with his currency. So you have that uh, people who are taxed in a currency, but they are not actually receiving directly the currency of the public spending directly by the state, actually need to go find the currency from other private, other private agents. And this basically creates a generic system of arbitrage of currency within the private sector that we usually call market. So basically, I see the market as an arbitrage of currency. And I see in such, in such a way, I see a discrimination in the access of currency. There are, and those discrimination are, of course, made, first of all, on, let's say, individual basis. There are those who have the possibility to have direct access to currency, yeah, those who, who doesn't have. So, but then you have also geographical and let's say class balance of power that can be shifted because of how the state organizes spending to who the state provide what I call the primary supply of the currency. And also, and discrimination basically create this that I call the currency filter, which is 
all the passage that the currency need to do before to reach a specific agent. And this has implications for the evolution of the term of exchange of the currency within the private sector. Of course, being an arbitrage at the primary supply, the currency will have a value, a term of exchange for real goods and, and services, which are very likely to be lower than in, in the next passage. And you can see the effect of that in prices. How come uh, the prices in a very remote or peripheric area are likely to be different than, I don't know, in the center of the capital of a country? Because the primary supply of the spending is likely to be more in the, in the center of the capital than anywhere else. Yeah, so this is basically the, the overview. And another point which is very important that is related with all the things I said is that the currency being a monopoly, I mean, the, the monopolies has a power, a direct power in the determination of its value of its term of exchange is the state that decide what the private sector need to do to at the primary supply to to get its currency what and and that's something that in post-Keynesian theory and approach is completely absent. So okay, this is great overview because you talked about arbitrage, and I think a lot of people probably wouldn't know what that term means. Because it's a word that's really intended for, you know, people within the economic field. But this is an extremely important word, and, and it captures an awful lot of stuff. If you look at just the dictionary version of it, it says the simultaneous buying and selling of securities, currency, or commodities in different markets or in derivative forms in order to take advantage of different prices for the same asset. So basically, this is talking about trade and the exchange of not only currency, but goods and services. That is arbitrage, correct? Yeah, well, for arbitrage, I mean that there is basically economic agent then that buy something and then resell the same thing at a higher price. And is this case of currency when you have a corporation, for example, that received the currency directly from the state at a specific term of exchange, and then is able to resell this currency to buy other things, providing higher value to the currency. Why? Because the subject, this corporation that is uh, buying those commodities, doesn't have the direct access to the state. Let me make an example, so maybe it will be more clear. Make the, the case the state is building uh, a new parliament, okay, and is hiring a big company for making this parliament. And fine, then you have this corporation then is actually providing part of the job to another corporation. And then you have this other corporation which is actually providing part of his job, let's say half of his job to another corporation. I don't know how is the word for this in English, but... Uh, well in the it's, I can tell you what the word for it in English is. This is called outsourcing. This is outsourcing. what they do all the time where they'll take a primary, they call it the prime, so you have a prime vendor that is contracted to do a major service. 
they will then in turn send out what they call RFPs or RFIs to find out who can compete to bid for the next pieces of those puzzles. And what they'll do is they'll pick the low cost provider so they can keep making profit on all these different groups coming in to do this work. So that right there is a definite version or a definite great example of arbitrage. Now it all makes sense to me. That That's outsourcing 101. They do yeah. it in the United States all the time. Yes. And I think that people can intuitively understand that the, also the worker, both the worker and the capitalist that are part of the first corporation who's taking the first job yeah. from the state are in a different position than all the other. They are likely to have higher profit and higher salary. Then the last firm who is doing his job under a degree of outsourcing. Why? Because the currency needs to go first from the first corporation, then to the second, then to the third. So you have a filter over there. You have a balance of power over there. And actually, this is the market overall. The overall market is like this. Why? Because the currency can come as net financial assets can come from just the state. And or we get it directly from the state or we get from somebody who get it before us. And so you, you have in the economy at all a kind of network and chain of yeah, passage of selling and buy currency for labor or commodity that incorporate labor that reflect basically a balance of power. And to make uh, even more clear, if you have an employer of last resort, a job guarantee, a transitional job program, that is a very important MMT policy proposal, you are changing this. You are changing this because you are providing to everybody universally a direct access to currency. So what I call the currency filter change is design. And yes, I think, I mean, I hope that uh, I was clear you are listening to Macro and Cheese, a podcast brought to you by Real Progressives, a nonprofit organization dedicated to teaching the masses about MMT or modern monetary theory. Please help our efforts and become a monthly donor at PayPal or Patreon. Like and follow our pages on Facebook and YouTube and follow us on Periscope, Twitter, and Instagram. talked previously about the inequality baked into that system. Obviously, the people that get that first pass at this have a higher standard of living, have a higher benefit rate. For example, in the United States, it's not uncommon for that first dollar to be spent into a major corporation that is obviously friends of people that are in Congress and so forth, a lot of corruption and so forth. But they have benefits, they have health care, they have Cadillac plans, they're, they're able to do all these great things. 
But then the contractors that they hire oftentimes don't even have health benefits, have an hourly wage without any paid time off. They're an at-will employee, meaning that they could be fired at any time for any reason without cause. And they have no protections whatsoever. So not only are they getting filtered through this currency filter you talk about, but they're also being really, really stranglehold by the capitalists, by the first-past corporation that gets that first access to the currency upon the first issuance. So there's an incredible amount of inequality baked into this currency filter that I don't think people fully realize. I know that they understand something's wrong, but the idea of how does this play in? How do we balance this out? How do we bring about a more equal society? And I know that, you know, we've talked some about this, but what is your prescription? What is the MMT response to how to address this currency filter and this access to currency that is so unequal? Yes, let me answer to the point that you raised first. Yes, for sure. Then once that you have that uh, people need to find the currency from other private, then you have a balance of power within the private sector, which if uh, you are talking about worker against uh, that need to get the currency from capitalists, this is a class, class struggle issue. But also in this case, let's say to... Uh, to understand this currency filter is important because you will understand the difference that the position of worker into the filter also at the light of, let's say, a very good organization, uh, like union organization, in a sense that if you have a very strong union organization inside a corporation which receives the currency directly by the state, those workers are more likely to be able to reach something, okay? Because the corporation itself is in a privileged state. So it can allow herself to, you know, give something to worker. There is a space, this, uh, let's say a space of contractual possibility, which is larger. Otherwise, if you are worker that are working for the outsourcing of the outsourcing firm, then uh, the space that, also the union, the, let's say the possibility of advance that also the union can, can try to reach, there are everything else being equal, way more restricted. And this is also from a sociological and economical, political, industrial policies perspective, important, I think, to recognize. Then, of course, employer of last resort is the first thing that somehow provides uh, universal access to currency, at least to worker, and this may already will be the first step and will make for sure the difference. Then on the other side, there would be an industrial policy design that should take this into account. So the state, I think, doesn't need in its public spending to exacerbate concentration dynamics. Okay. Uh, so it doesn't make any sense for me that the state goes increasing investment, increasing spending, any, which, of course, translate in employment in places where it's already super crowd, you know, and leaving aside maybe the most rural area or the most uh, the area where 
basically there is lots of unemployment. The state needs to go spend first where there is, let's say, more unemployment, where there is uh, less, let me, let me say, population density in some extent. Then, of course, there is other variable that need to be taken into account. But you see, if you have a city like Hong Kong or a city like London or Moscow, where all the spending is going from decades, and there, I mean, the situation is becoming absurd. The, the, the price of housing is becoming crazy. You have gentrification and you have basically a, a society which is becoming more and more impossible. So my, my suggestion is to, to not concentrate the public spending there, but try to delocate a little bit what is possible to delocate in terms of, I don't know, agency, in terms of investment for for specific function that could be not concentrating into the capital. Otherwise, you will tend to have, let's say, a society which is polarized between mega city and, and empty, forgotten uh, territory. Yeah. That sounds just like the United States right now, just so you understand. In the U.S., as an example, we have this very big fight, and it largely translates, ironically, directly into party lines of Democrat versus Republican, where you can see the major metropolitan areas of the United States are largely Democrat, and they are largely the heavy uh, concentration of diverse populations, minorities, uh, etc., large population centers. And then the more rural areas are red state or Republican states. And these individuals, there's a huge chasm of resentment, whereas these rural states want to have a say in what's going on. They feel like they're completely dominated by these urban centers. And the urban centers are saying, hey, we've got so many people here. We need to address these problems. And because we have neglected both the rural areas, people try to, you know, they tend to forget that because of the many, many years of racism and so forth that we've had in this country. But there's a real situation there where these individuals have been forgotten about long since left behind. The uh, austerity in the rural areas of America is an atrocity, and it creates the environment that brings about someone like a Donald Trump who in this country has been an embarrassment to us all. But the idea here is, is that when you look at the arbitrage and you look at the way that money is spent into the economy, these areas are largely forgotten and they, they have to drive 30, 40 miles just to go to see a doctor. It's really, really rough and there's no getting out of it because you don't have any money to leave. So you're stuck and they leave these islands of people that are desperate and destitute. And I think this is a really important point you raise. So thank you very much. Let's go ahead and talk now about the exchange rate. I know that you spent an incredible amount of time and effort working on the foreign exchange theory for MMT and your understanding of its role with the external constraints, understanding the monopoly power of the currency issuing government. Can you tell us about your theory that you've developed or worked on and explain to us the relevancy uh, for those people that are both learning MMT, but are also trying to get a better understanding of the world around us? 
Sure. So basically, the line of reasoning goes that the state at the primary supply define what the private sector need to do to get its currency directly from him in terms of abstract labor. Abstract labor is a Marxian uh, concept, which basically means time of labor at average intensity and prevalent technique. So basically time of labor. And for example, if we think that the state would provide 10 euro or $10 for one hour of labor and in average directly for labor or for commodity that incorporates one hour of labor and another country, let's say Japan, actually is uh, doing the, the double. So it's saying, well, I will do, I will provide 20 yen for one hour of labor or for commodity that uh, embody one hour of labor. Then, uh, I mean, the intuition is that everything has been equal. The structural exchange rate would gravitate around uh, the one dollar will, uh, will be two yen. Okay. There will be one to one dollar to two yen. One to two. And so this to, to provide an ease. Then, of course, there are many other elements that are need to be taken into account. Credit dynamics, real economics dynamics. You know, there is a monopoly power that can distort this structural term of exchange as well as a shift in technology in one place on the other. But to recognize that structurally, there is something which is set by the state. And then uh, there could be dynamics which are built on that. Okay. One of those dynamics is also how harsh, let's say, how discriminate is the, the currency filter. Because if you have a country that has, for example, an employer of last resort or as a state that is not making lots of discrimination in, in the access of currency, and another state in which this, this discrimination is very, very high, also this will impact the exchange rate. Why? Because in the country where there is lots of discrimination in the access of currency, there will be an increase, a very big increase within the, the domestic, local, the private sector in the currency value. So why is it important to understand that at the end of the day? Is it important to understand that so there is a constraint that is set by the state on the value of the currency, the value of the currency, both in terms of real resource, in terms of abstract labor and in terms of other currency is not random and is not driven by the import export. You know, it's not uh, trade imbalances which are driving itself, the exchange rate. There is something a priori of that. Then. Otherwise, trade imbalances are reflecting the foreign net desire to save our currency at the current term of exchange, which is set domestically. And why is it so? Because the currency is created by the state with a term of exchange. The term of exchange doesn't emerge a posteriori, once that get into, into the into international market or, or so. It actually 
at first introduced into the system with a term of exchange. And uh, somebody could say, well, but who care about the term of exchange that a state is providing? Well, look, the point is that the state is able with the, the system that we know taxation and, and spending to set, at least at the primary supply, how much work a currency buy, how much work, work time. And work time, which is labor force, actually are an essential input for any production. So once your currency buy labor, it has value for everybody, it's commensurable for everybody. So that's why there's no point. I mean, it's not about if foreign agent will be interested or not in our currency, is a which term of exchange. And of course, the term of exchange will be compared with how much labor a foreign currency is able to buy. So this is basically my paper. And the conclusion is that you don't have to care about trade and balances for the exchange rate itself, because the exchange rate is more a result than a cause of the exchange rate. And it's very important to say this, and now I'm finishing, but because in my experience in Italy, in Spain, in, in the academics, outside the academics, at one point, say the most uh, pernicious concept that emerged is the foreign constraint. And MMT doesn't say that there is no foreign constraint at all. The foreign constraint, of course, could be there also in a floating exchange rate system, but is technological, is of, of a qualita qualitatively, qualitative. It's not about currency. It's not about exchange rate. It's different. It's about what you are able to produce with your labor force. But there, there's no constraint that prevents you to have full employment when you have a floating exchange rate system and you are a control of your currency. This is fantastic. So really to put a bow on it, Many of the folks that follow us here at Real Progressives would say it is the real resources, once again, the ability to purchase goods and services with your currency that is what really matters in the end. And it is definitely a function of the monopoly issuer's value that they've placed on their own currency because they are the price setter, as Warren Mosler often says. Yvonne, thank you so much. This was incredibly enlightening to me. Hopefully, everybody got to enjoy this. I can't wait to see you again. Tell everyone over there within your team and so forth, the rest of the people that are with the Reta MMT community that we at Real Progressives and Macro and Cheese thank them for all the hard work they're doing. And you in particular, Yvonne, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. It's a very pleasure to be here and I hope that we will continue to have collaboration like this one where, because I see this exchange has been very fruitful and very energizing from also from a moral and psychological standpoint for me. Absolutely. All right. Well, look, thank you so much. And with that, we're going to close out. Everyone, please follow us on Macro and Cheese, Real Progressives. We look forward to hearing from you all in the future. Thank you so much. And of course, Follow Yvonne at Reta MMT Italy. And with that, have a great day, everyone. Bye-bye.